Hey, well, good morning to all of you. It is a joy for me to be here at this church. Uh, thanks for your partnership with us and for ministries like we just saw, Young Life. What a cool uh, thing they're doing right there. It really encouraged me. And your financial support, your prayer support, your encouragement uh, really goes a long way. And so don't ever underestimate that and know that uh, my wife, Carla, who couldn't be here today, but uh, Carla and myself and others that you support uh, really do value uh, what you do for us. How many uh, have not heard me speak here before? Can you just raise your hand? Great. Uh, so wonderful to see new faces. I'll just give you a quick overview of what the Baseball Chapel is. Um, Baseball Chapel is an organization that began in the 1970s. And it really was um, a player-driven where players began it. Uh, they wanted to do something on Sunday mornings before ball games. And so they would bring different people in to speak. And then a gentleman by the name of Wadi Spolstra, who was a writer for a Detroit newspaper. And then uh, someone you may recognize, Ernie Harwell. How many remember that name? Uh, Ernie went to the commissioner of baseball, Bowie Kuhn, and said, hey, we'd like to start a ministry uh, to provide chaplains for the different teams on a voluntary basis. And um, uh, Bowie Kuhn, who's commissioner of baseball, uh, gave that permission to this new organization called Baseball Chapel. And uh, Bowie Kuhn, in his autobiography, said this. He said, as a Roman Catholic, one of the best decisions he ever made as the commissioner of baseball was to allow this ev evangelical organization to come into the clubhouses and provide chapels. And so uh, chapel began going into the stadium then in the 1970s. And it really has expanded now to where on a Sunday morning, what I do during the season is I'll go to Comerica Park and we'll do four chapels. And this is pre-COVID. Uh, it's changed a little bit in the last uh, year or two. But uh, we'll do a chapel for stadium workers. So some of the vendors and security people that are there early in the morning can't go to church. We'll do a chapel for them. Uh, we'll do a chapel for the visiting team. So like if the Yankees are in town, we'll do a chapel for them. Any Yankee fans here? There'll be an altar call later for you, and you get right with God. Uh, and then uh, we do one for the Tigers, and it's uh, players, coaches, uh, some of the people right around the team down in the clubhouse area. And then we do the last one is for umpires, which is really one of my favorites. Uh, there's four umps at a big league game. And we'll do chapel for them. And always kid, we use Braille Bibles, but that's not true. Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, beyond the chapel, kind of like Sunday morning is right here, uh, the real ministry happens away from Sunday morning through discipleship, through one-on-one -on -one with guys. Uh, my wife, Carla, along with a former player's wife, uh, Kathy Tanana, uh, Frank's wife, they'll go to the ballpark every Tuesday night and do a dinner and a Bible study for wives and girlfriends. And so anything you think of, of a church setting is really what we seek to do uh, in that component of our ministry, which is a big part of it, uh, with Baseball Chapel. Every uh, major league chaplain, and there's one for all 30 big league teams, uh, every one of us oversees the minor league teams in the organization. So we make sure that chapel's happening in, uh, for me, uh, Toledo, which is the AAA team for the Tigers. Erie, Pennsylvania is the AA team. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, two teams in Lakeland, Florida. And then uh, there's a team in the Dominican Republic. 
And so we have men and women doing ministry to those teams, players, wives, girlfriends, families, uh, and usually two guys at every team now, uh, a guy who does it in English and a guy who does it in Spanish. Uh, with COVID, of course, uh, the first year, 2020, we went all Zoom. And so everything we had to do Sunday morning, Bible studies was done with Zoom or uh, FaceTime or something. And then uh, this last year, we began the season doing chapels at the ballpark, but we had to go to a way remote spot in the ballpark to do it outside <clears throat> on the concourse by one of the restaurants. And so you had to leave like Saturday night to get there. And uh, it was a long walk. And then eventually they let us go down into the dugout. And so right now we do the chapel. This last year we finished up uh, doing chapels right there in the dugout for the players. And then for the umpires, we could slide into their uh, locker room to do it. And so uh, that's kind of a quick overview of what the ministry of a baseball chapel looks like. Um, uh, we don't uh, shy away from we're going to open up the Bible every week. I tell people we're going to be Bible-centered, uh, Christ-centered, and Bible-focused. We're going to open up the Bible, and we're going to preach and talk about Jesus Christ, just like we'll do here today. And so thanks for your prayers uh, and encouragement with that. Uh, one of the coaches this year lived with us. I uh, got called up uh, during the season, and uh, our kids are all out of the house now. And um, we have a little finished basement. It's nothing glamorous, but uh, it suffices. And so uh, half the time they're on the road. And so uh, his wife wasn't with him this year. She couldn't get away from where they live in the uh, off season. And so uh, he lived with us uh, and probably will do the same uh, this coming year as well. If you have any questions afterwards, I'd love to talk to you further about it. And uh, keep the ministry, if you would, in prayer. One other thing I'll just mention uh, the event uh, we do every year called Home Plate. And this is an outreach event we do right at the ballpark where we invite churches all over the uh, state, northern Ohio, Ontario. We'll come to a ballpark early before a game, and players will come out and talk about their faith in Christ. And usually we try to have a baseball clinic on the field and then stay for the game. So this year it'll be on Saturday, May 14th. I know it's a little bit of drive for you from up here, but your church has brought groups uh, many times throughout the years, and some have come on your own. So if you have any interest, uh, May 14th, and uh, we'll get more information out uh, about that to you as well. Uh, again, thanks so much. I appreciate your pastor, Jeff Ellis. Uh, we don't see each other all the time, but he's such a, uh, an encourager and a friend. And I uh, am thankful that he and Denise can be away, and I'm grateful for the privilege to be here to share God's word with you today. So we're going to look at uh, two passages today, one in the New Testament uh, and one in the Old Testament. And so if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to uh, open it up and, and join uh, and follow along as I read. But we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And um, it, it kind of, for me at least, uh, this message is as, as much for me as it uh, hopefully will be for you about serving. And you know, at the beginning of the year, I usually try to do a little evaluation of, okay, what are we doing? Uh, what do we need to do different? Uh, what do I need to do different? And so uh, the passages that we'll look at today kind of tie into that. Matthew chapter 9, up until this point in the gospel of Matthew, most of the ministry that has been done has been done by Jesus himself. 
at the end of Matthew 9, going into Matthew chapter 10, the ministry now will also be done by those 12 apostles or disciples. And so this is really kind of a bridge passage where it's going from, hey, it's not just about Jesus doing ministry, but it's about those who are around Jesus doing ministry as well. And so that's kind of the, the place where we're at. Matthew chapter 9, and down at verse number 35, it says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so this little uh, transitional uh, passage here is uh, Jesus inviting others to, number one, pray for people to do ministry. And you'll find that as these 12 men begin to pray about others serving, guess what they begin to do? They serve. Isn't that something? What we pray for really becomes a burden upon our life, and they got involved. You'll see in Matthew chapter 10, the chapter opens up with the 12 apostles named, and then in verse number 5, Jesus is sending them out. And so that's kind of the transitions that, that's happening right here. And so this idea of stepping out. The, the passage says send out. The idea is to step out. Step out and do something that maybe is out of your comfort zone. Or step out and do something maybe you haven't done before or even thought about before. But God brings it and puts it upon your heart. Uh, the passage we read, there's a few key words we want to uh, touch on. The first is the word where it says he had compassion on them. The Greek word, and I'm not going to get into all sorts of Greek here, but this is an interesting Greek word. The Greek word right there, and the, this passage originally was written in Greek, the Greek word there is the word splanknik. Now, does anyone know what that word means, splanknik? Anyone at all? Any doctors here? Oh, there's one. What is a splanknik? It is, and it's a nerve, isn't it? It's an actual nerve that uh, goes to your abdominal area, uh, kind of your gut. I am I right? And so it's a nerve. And we would think of phrases like, boy, that touched a nerve. Or my heart sank. Or it like punched me in the gut. And that's what it's saying here about Jesus and his burden to be a shepherd to people that he was passing on to others. There ought to be some things that just kind of hit you in the gut in life. And you say, you know what? I'm so concerned about that. Someone's got to do something. And if no one else does, guess what? I will. 
Uh, I didn't know that they were showing that video clip about young life. What a great story. Uh, this young, uh, I think it was a man shooting baskets uh, with a disability. And something just caught uh, the ministry's vision of, hey, we can do something about that. And what I want to ask you to think about, and I'm asking myself this at the beginning of a new year. What are the things that God wants to kind of hit me in the gut about? That maybe we've never thought of doing before or have done before. Or uh, no, I've not done it, but others have. And maybe I need to get involved and say, you know what? That's the compassion that I need to have. And so Jesus was, uh, he had that compassion and he was passing it on to these others of, hey, this is not about me doing ministry and you guys watching me do it. This is about you doing ministry with me. And I really encourage you to take that message to heart. And I'm not just talking about ministry in the church on Sunday morning or a weekday ministry that happens here at the church. Those are important and vital, and I challenge and encourage you to be involved. But what about the things that you and I see every day that God may be saying, hey, you can do something about that. Maybe that single mom who needs help with her family and you, your husband, your wife, whoever, can have a ministry there to her and with her. Um, maybe someone at work going through a hard time. Maybe someone with a disability. I, I don't know. But I do know there's a God that has compassion upon people and he wants us to share in that with him. Amen? And that's what we're called to do. And it does not just have to be driven through the church leadership. It's really something that we're all called to be involved with. Uh, another word in this passage that I think is important is the word shepherd. Um, we're not just called to lead people. We're really called to shepherd people. And I think there's a difference. Uh, there, there's some great leaders who get the objective accomplished but can run over a lot of people in the process. And a shepherd doesn't do that. A shepherd has a pastor's heart, is caring, is concerned. Uh, they say that shepherds of Jesus's day, and maybe even today, that they actually name their sheep. I don't know if I would do that. But they actually name their sheep because they, they want it to be a personal thing. And for us to get involved personally in the lives of others is so important. It's not about accomplishing the program, getting the activity done. It's about really connecting and interacting in the lives of others. And then we mentioned uh, this idea of praying earnestly. What they prayed about, they began to get involved with. And so our prayer lives really help determine the direction of where we're going to serve. See something that's a burden to you, that kind of hits you in the gut, and you pray about it, God's gonna use you directly or indirectly, probably, to have some part in ministering in that area. And then the final word, and it kind of ties into our, our title, is the idea of sent out. Uh, the word there, sent out, is almost like a, a, a bird, a baby bird, being knocked out of the nest 
to learn to fly. And, uh, and it's for the baby's benefit. And uh, we're told, hey, you may not always feel like you're ready and you know everything. You don't have to. Because you're going to learn to fly as you go out and serve other people. And so that is the challenge that Jesus gives to his disciples in this really transitional passage of. It's not just about Jesus doing the ministry. It's about all of us being involved in doing the ministry. Now, that's the New Testament passage that I wanted to take a look at. Because it really then sets up what I want to look at in the Old Testament. And, and use uh, the greatest example, of course, is Jesus of doing ministry. But there's also a, a, an Old Testament example of a man that I really like, and I like this book a lot. Many people go to this book and they're kind of like, ah, it's kind of a downer. But I really think it's an uplifting book in many ways. And it's uh, the, the book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. So if you would, turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes, a couple books after Psalms, and uh, go to the very end of the book. We're going to look at a passage there in chapter 12. Uh, Solomon wrote this book. Solomon was a king of Israel. He was the son of David. He lived about 900 years before Christ. Uh, Solomon is likened or called one of the wisest people, certainly of his day and age. Uh, Solomon wrote three books in the Old Testament. He wrote the Song of Solomon. Many think he wrote that probably as a younger man about his one true love, the woman he fell in love with and truly loved. Uh, then he wrote the book of Proverbs. Many think he wrote that maybe more middle-aged, kind of advice to his kids as they were leaving the home. And then, uh, and you'll find out repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, phrases like, my children, my son, my daughter. Uh, and so he's writing that to his kids, kind of collecting wisdom for them in life. And then the last book that uh, many think he wrote, or he wrote, and many think he wrote at the end of his life, is this book of Ecclesiastes, where he kind of takes inventory on his life. And isn't that a good thing to do? You can do that without being old. You know that, right? We don't have to be old to do that. And so Solomon, though, takes some inventory of his life. Uh, if you read that book, many kind of think it's kind of negative or down. I really don't think it is. Uh, there's some key phrases in that book. Uh, one of the phrases that's used quite a bit in that book, 27 times, is the phrase, under the sun. Many times we don't see the uh, other phrase, like it, that's used. It's only used three times in the book, and that's under heaven. And really what Solomon is doing, I think, in the book is he's lightning, likening a life to one of two philosophies. Either you're going to live life just accountable to what is under the sun. In other words, temporal, here on earth. It's all about just life here, under the sun. Or you and I are going to choose to live life under heaven accountable to something more than just what's temporal, accountable to eternity, accountable to the God of eternity. And so if you uh, read this book, and I encourage you to maybe take uh, a day or so, and, and it won't take you that long to read, it's only 12 chapters, is look at the, the difference where he weighs out, hey, I, I view life just under the sun, and here's what I found out about it, but then I view life under heaven accountable to God, and here's what I see about it. 
Um, there's a phrase in the book called chasing the wind. Uh, used seven times. And, uh, and many of us maybe have gone through that. Solomon went through that. He chased after a lot of stuff that he determined toward the end of his life really was meaningless. Well, why did I spend so much time on that? Why did I invest so much money there? And remember, this was a smart guy. He was very wealthy. He was the wealthiest king of Israel. Uh, he was popular. He was the king. So he was popular whether you liked him or not, right? He, he had it all. And he talks about it in the book. And often he goes back to that stuff and says, you know, that was all under the sun. But then at parts of the book, he writes about what really was valuable to him. And it was about what was under heaven. And what he realized God had given to him and challenged him with. And one of those things, at the end of the book, he describes what he saw himself as being as a shepherd or as a leader. And that's what I want to kind of wrap our time up with here uh, to look at. Uh, he, he says, here are some things I learned on how to lead other people. In uh, Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 12, and if you look down at verse number 9, he begins by saying this. Besides being wise, the preacher, and some translations will have there the word teacher, uh, but he calls himself by that name. Uh, the word there that's in Hebrew, we're really not 100% sure of its meaning. I, I think the, maybe the best meaning that I've seen is it's one who leads an assembly or one who leads a group of people. And think about that a moment. Uh, you lead some people in life whether you realize it or not. Uh, you lead maybe your uh, children, if you have children, your grandchildren, uh, your relatives. Uh, you may lead in your work environment. You may lead uh, some group of people in church. But probably all of us have some people that we're influencing. And that's really what uh, Solomon was saying. He's saying here at the end of the book, toward the end of his life, he's saying, here's what I learned about being an influence for God on the lives of other people. And he gave seven characteristics uh, that I want us to look at here. And uh, he listened. Let me read the entire passage, and then we'll go back and look at some of the words in particular. So he says in verse 9, <coughs> excuse me, besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people uh, knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Uh, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Uh, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collective sa collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. So here he gives a little description about how he learned to be an influencer of other people. And uh, let, let's look at seven characteristics. Here's the first one. He says at the beginning uh, in the translation I read from, he also taught the people knowledge. Uh, the NIV uses the word still. 
he still taught the people. I kind of like that word better, and that's what it means. That even though many things in life can distract us, you know what, and many times Solomon had failed. You know what he said? Hey, I'm still here doing what God called me to do. I'm not quitting. And so the characteristic that I learned from that is the idea of being steadfast. Uh, don't be a quitter. Be a man or a woman or a young person who says, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be steadfast to the things and to the people that God has called me to. Now, I don't know what your past is, and you don't know all about my past. All of us have things in the past where we've quit, okay? Uh, maybe you uh, quit on a job or quit on a ministry, or uh, maybe you went through a divorce and there was a breakup of a, a relationship. We all have things in our past, and so I'm not here to beat anyone up. But here's what I am to challenge you and me to do. Whatever you're committed to right now, be steadfast to it. Don't quit on it. Determine, hey, I'm in this for the long haul as long as God wants me in that situation, in that relationship, uh, in that ministry, at that church. I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm going to be faithful. And folks, that is like the huge part of the battle right there, is showing up and being faithful. Yeah, part of that's church attendance. I get that. But beyond that are the relationships and the opportunities that God gives us that I'm going to be faithful to. And Solomon recognized that. He said uh, he still taught the people knowledge. He also taught the people knowledge. He wasn't content just to get by. He's going to say, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do what I'm called to do. Uh, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, uh, a verse that uh, maybe you're very familiar with. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Wow. Uh, realize you're investing in eternity. And folks, Solomon got that. He didn't always get that in his life. But here at the end of his life, as he looked back, he's saying the times that meant the most to me are when I invested in God's program for eternity and I remained steadfast to it. We had, maybe saw this on the news, uh, right before Christmas, uh, the Tigers' first base coach, Kamara Barti, died. Uh, Kamara came up with the Tigers as a player in the late 90s. I was doing chapel at the time, so I met Kamara in uh, 1996. And he played with the Tigers through 1999. And then he bounced around a little bit further and then was out of baseball, got into coaching. And last season, uh, he was an instructor in the Tigers minor league system. And then uh, halfway through the season, when our first base coach took a college assignment, uh, Kamara came up and became our first base coach. And uh, I think it was December 21st, he was in Omaha. He lives in Atlanta. He was in Omaha visiting his uh, dad and mom. And middle of the night got up and uh, collapsed in the bathroom and died. Found out later he had a brain tumor that he knew nothing about, had no symptoms, and uh, basically probably acted like a stroke and killed him.
And uh, as uh, I got the news uh, the next morning, um, I went through my text messages that I had with Kamar over the years. And there you see a picture of him. He was with Pittsburgh for a while. I think this picture is from 2018. And uh, he was there in Detroit. The Pirates were playing the Tigers. And uh, it was a Sunday morning and he was there. He came to chapel and uh, someone snapped a picture of us. And uh, uh, Kamara in 2017-18 was going through a little tough period. And so I texted him and here's what he texted back. Uh, I, I texted him just saying, I'm praying for you, something like that. He said, thank you, brother. It's been hard, but it's put me in a position to give everything to God. And that is what I've chosen to do. Isn't that a great word of testimony? Of, you know, it's a good thing sometimes, not sometimes, to be in the place where I got to give it to God. I can't do this on my own. And Solomon wrote about that. He had tried to do a lot of things in his life kind of on his own. But here he says to us, be steadfast, be faithful, be, here's a word we could use, be loyal to God. The word loyal, some have defined it, here's the definition I like, using adversity to confirm my commitment to those whom God has called me to serve. So often when adversity comes, uh, we want to bail. And I think uh, what Solomon is writing about is just the opposite. He's saying, hey, I still imparted knowledge to the people. I kept doing it, even though at times it was hard and difficult. And so that's the first word I would leave with us, and I'm leaving it for myself, is uh, be steadfast. Here's the second one. Uh, and we see in the Bible the word that's used is the word weighing. Uh, we could use the word measuring. I think some translations use the words uh, gave heed. And the idea is to uh, ponder, uh, to be a sensible listener. Uh, we don't have all the answers. And so I have to listen to other people, to godly counsel. I have to listen to godly advice. And Solomon recognized that. He did not fly off the handle and just make a decision. He said, I'm going to weigh it out. I'm going to ponder. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to be a, a good uh, listener. By the way, we didn't read this verse, but later at the end of verse 12 and 13, Solomon writes about how there are so many books being written beyond the Bible. And he's saying, you know what? Don't weigh those heavier than what the Word of God says. And so when we go to get counsel and we want to listen, we have to ask ourselves, what am I listening to here? And be careful that we listen to the right things and the right people. Uh, and that's going to be sourced out of the Word of God. Be that type of a person. Um, I, I love uh, ministry in the uh, athletic environment. This is not true in every case, but in many cases, athletes who have reached kind of the pinnacle in their uh, world of sport uh, neglected other things along the way. And so for a lot of guys, they've neglected uh, the Bible. Uh, they were playing ball every Sunday, not going to church. And, um, and when a guy gets on fire and wants to grow in his faith, they're like a sponge. 
and they want to dig into this book and they want to listen. And it is such a privilege and joy to be open, open up the word of God and share it with them. And then they get excited about it. And, um, you know, guys will get a tat with a verse, a tattoo. Uh, one of my favorite stories back in the late 90s, we had a third baseman on our team named Travis Fryman. And we had a second baseman named Damian Easley. And that particular season, Travis led a road Bible study with the guys. Travis would do a Bible study with myself and Frank Tanana in Detroit. Then Travis on the road would take a handful of guys and lead them through the book that we were taking him through. And in that book, you had to memorize different verses of Scripture. And we really, it's got to be word perfect. you to memorize them word perfect. And so um, they did that. The next year, Travis was traded to the Cleveland Indians. So he's no longer a Tiger. And the Tigers were back in, De in Detroit to play, a, or the Indians were in Detroit to play a game. And so Travis came back as an Indian now. And um, uh, he's playing third base, and Damian Easley, our second baseman, is up to bat, gets a hit, goes to first, goes to second, goes over to third. And uh, there he is with his old buddy Travis, who had done this Bible study with, memorized verses with, done the workbook, all of it. And between pitches, you know how the runner will come back to the bag and the third baseman will come over? And between pitches, Travis and Damian are just talking to one another like that. I was at the game, and I was watching them. They were just like really in an intense conversation. And I saw Damien a couple days later. I said, what were you and Travis talking about? He said he was quizzing me on my Bible memory verses from last year. Said, yeah. And you know what, folks? The Word of God becomes what we want to listen to. And we want to hide it in our hearts. And Solomon realized that. He wrote some of it. He said, I've got, I've got to weigh what I listen to. And I got to take the fluff and set it aside and listen to what really is truthful uh, and important. Here's the third characteristic that's mentioned. Uh, it says uh, study, uh, that uh, he was studying. Now, it almost sounds like school. Like, let's just skip this one, right? What a joy it can be to study the Word of God. Acts chapter 17 uh, Paul writes about those who were at Berea. And see, these were more noble because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were true. How about that? We ought to be noble and, and realize we have a privilege to search the Scriptures daily. I want to share a true story with you. And uh, rather than kind of recite it, I'll kind of just read it here as it's written. But uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., at the metro station, on a cold January morning in 2007, a man with a violin played six Bach pieces for about an hour. Uh, during that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. And here's a real little chronology. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace, stopped for a few seconds, then hurried to meet his schedule. Four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat and without stopping continued to walk. Six minutes, 
uh, in. A young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk away. Ten minutes. A three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. Uh, the kid stopped to look again at the violinist, but the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their child to move on quickly. 45 minutes. Uh, the musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money. Uh, but continued to walk at a normal pace. The man collected $32. At the one hour mark, he finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, uh, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played with one of the most intricate he played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth 3.5 million dollars. Uh, two days before he had played a theater in Boston where the average seat price was hundred dollars. This is a true story. Joshua Bell played incognito in the metro station as it was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and people's priorities. Isn't that true how much, uh, how many, we, we get so wrapped up in our own priorities, we miss some beautiful things around us in life? And sadly, here we have something uh, worth way more than any violin, and you know what we can do? We can kind of, either out of ignorance, or out of our own schedule, our own priorities, kind of rush away and just put aside the word of God. And it says about Solomon, he studied it. Uh, this is our, our love letter from God, our lifeline to eternity, and it is given for us. Uh, in here are the words of life, not just about life. And folks, we need to be students of it. I don't know what your past is. Every January, I usually tend to say, you know what? There's some areas of my time with the word of God that I need to improve. And when I do that, I really become a better leader of other people and an influencer. And so the word to be studious. Uh, here's the fourth one. Uh, and uh, he says here uh, in the passage we read, arranging many proverbs with great care. And so the word we'll put there is the word systematic. He had a plan. He didn't just kind of wing it. And I'd encourage you to have a plan about what you want to do in your own spiritual life, what you want to see God do, and how you want to serve others. Have a plan for it. Don't just sit, well, I guess we'll see what happens. But really have a plan. Pray about it. Uh, then it says, he sought to find words of delight. And what do we mean by that? It wasn't saying he found words that just pleased other people. But words that people could relate to. And what a privilege we have in this world to be God's ambassadors, to take his message and make it relatable to those around us. And so I use the little phrase there, be slow speed. Don't run over people, but meet people where they're at in their walk and help them to grow in Christ. If they're searching, help them to find uh, the Lord of salvation, the Lord of eternity. 
Uh, one of the blessings that came out of COVID so far for me, um, in uh, April or May of 2020, a couple months after it all broke, <clears throat> I was back home in Detroit. One of the first things that opened up was golf. And so uh, I play golf with some guys. We'd go out and play. And you had to walk. You couldn't take carts. And I like walking anyway, but it made the other guys walk too. So a lot of time to talk to guys as you played golf and walked. And uh, one particular day, I was coming off and we just finished. And I was walking with a buddy of mine who I play with and uh, a lawyer. And I said, hey, what are you doing for uh, your work? Uh, you can't go to court. He said, well, do almost everything by Zoom. And he told me about what he was doing. And he said, what about you? And I said, well, pretty much the same thing. We're doing our chapels or Bible studies that way. He said, I'd like to get in on one of those. And it's a guy I really didn't expect to hear that from. Uh, and I said, really? And uh, so I thought about it and we began a Bible study. Him and me and two other guys. And you know, that study now is like 15 guys. Because of one guy who said, I want to get connected, but I know like nothing. And just meeting him where he's at, the basics, and then see other guys come along and get involved in that. And so we've got to uh, find words that relate to people. Uh, here's what it says about Jesus in Luke 4.22. Uh, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. The word, the idea of gracious words is the same idea of words of delight. They're gracious toward other people to help them understand the gospel. And then the last two. Uh, it says, um, he uprightly, uprightly he wrote words of truth. He was honest. Even though our words are going to be very gracious, we're still going to tell the truth. And we're going to be sincere about it. We're going to be gracious we're going to be slow speed, meet people where they're at, but we're going to share the word of God as it's written and not fluff over <clears throat> the truth. And then the final thing it says, <coughs> words given by one shepherd. And that means be scriptural. Let's make sure that how we minister to other people is based out of God's word and is extending the truths of God's word into the lives of other people. It says two things about it. It says, like goads. What's a goad? Well, as a kid uh, in like junior high, we took a visit to a um, butcher uh, place down in the farmer's market of Detroit, a slaughterhouse. And uh, they had these little uh, electric prods <clears throat> and they would prod those, it was a kosher a, a slaughterhouse. And they would um, prod uh, these cattle to go down a little chute, they would uh, put a clamp around their ankle, uh, hooked up to a chain, they'd lift them upside down, and the rabbi would come and say a blessing, and then slit their throat. And uh, you know how those cattle got there? Because of a prod, prodded them along. And you know, we're called to do that to one another. Hebrews, it says, let's provoke one another to love and good works. And so sometimes we have to prod each other along. And that's part of being an influencer. And then it says this, uh, like nails firmly fixed. Those were referring to the nails that would go and hold up a tent. Some of you, uh, I'm sure, camp and get out. And you know that when you put the tent up, you got to make sure that those uh, tent pegs are what? Firmly down. It gives stability. And folks, that's what we're called to do. 
We are called to be a shepherd to other people, uh, to be an influencer. To I, I like the word lead, but it's way more than just leading. It's coming alongside of, having a heart for people, having a compassion, and then being an influencer for Christ in their life. And so uh, I have to evaluate my own life, and I encourage you to do the same. Jesus said, he's not going to do all the ministry, but he's going to send us out to do ministry with him. And I encourage you, I know many of you already are, but be a person who's, who's said, I'm going. I'm going out to do some things that maybe I've never done before to be in ministry with Jesus Christ. Father, thanks uh, for the salvation we enjoy and um, uh, the, the grace and love that's shown to us through your son, Jesus. And uh, there, there's nothing that uh, we can do in and of ourselves to have that relationship. Uh, once we have it, once we know that we receive Christ, it is such a privilege to be part of serving you in your kingdom. Uh, sharing, as we read, the, king, the gospel of the kingdom. And so I pray that uh, each of us might take a little inventory of our own lives and say, hey, where am I at? Where, God, do you want to send me? Uh, where do I need to go? And how do I need to go to be an influencer of others around me? We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.